to the book of Jonah. All right. She's not feeling well. We'd like for our ministers and elders to come. And we want to anoint her with oil and pray for her before we read the scripture. Praise God. Sister Ella was baptized recently at the age of 85. I believe that God can take this dizziness away at the age of 85. Do you believe that? Let's believe God right now for Sister Ella. God, praise God. We've not made mention of this, but Sister Carolyn, it's good to have you in service with us. Praise God. The book of Jonah. The first chapter. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and found a ship. And we'll stop there. Then we'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. The seventh verse of chapter 10 of the book of Acts. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. And on the morrow, as they went on their journey... And drew nigh unto the city. Peter went up on, went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. All right, you may be seated. <clears throat> My only purpose in reading the two passages of Scripture found so far apart in the Bible, and yet having an apparent different meaning, is because that in verse 8, of chapter 10, the city Joppa is mentioned, and it's also found in Jonah, the first chapter. And I'd like to preach to you tonight on the subject, your spiritual Joppa. Joppa was a place in which two very important decisions were made 
relative to the salvation of Gentiles. One was made by Jonah, and he decided not to do the will of God. The other was made by Peter about 900 years later, and he decided to do the will of God. I feel that it's so very important for you to understand that God's will is the only thing that will make you happy. Nobody can be happy outside of the will of God. You know, and it seems so strange that people understand this, but they constantly struggle and fight against the will of God. People say, how can I know the will of God? <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> and I believe that the greatest quest among Christians today is a quest for the will of God. If you will take a poll of all the people that you come in contact with, some are sick and they need a healing. Some do not have jobs and they need jobs. Uh, some have this and that plaguing them. But the number one quest of all of God's people is what is his will for me? And yet the scripture really, in quite simple language, tells us how to find the will of God. There is a simple formula found in the Bible. And yet people are always saying, how can I know the will of God? I have people who come to me and tell me, said, Brother Grant, I prayed. I don't even know. I'm so confused. I don't know if the devil's talking to me or if God's talking to me. Now, <clears throat> you will continue to be confused until you follow the formula found in the Bible. In the Bible, in Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the formula is commit your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, that's only reasonable that you do this service. It's not unreasonable that God should ask you to do this. The reason why is because if you are genuinely interested in a life of peace and joy and happiness, it's only reasonable that you follow the prescribed plan. And after all, Jesus gave his life for you. Why can't you give your life for him? Two subjects taught in the Bible <clears throat> that seem to have a parallel and do have a parallel uh, in certain areas are justification and sanctification. Now, Sanctification simply means to be set aside or set apart or consecrated for a particular use. Justification is dealing with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross that made you just as if you had never sinned. You see, when the Lord takes his blood, takes your sins away with his blood... You are justified by that blood. Now, while we do teach baptism is for the remission of sins, there is nothing in the Scripture that tells us the chemical components of water, H2O, two parts of hydrogen, one part of oxygen, has the power to take sins away. You may say, then, what really takes sins away? Well, if you notice in the Scripture, the Bible says that our sins are remitted in baptism. Also, Peter stands up and declares in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts that there is salvation in none other but the name of Jesus. See? And then, of course, Paul comes along 
in the book of Hebrews, if Paul wrote the book of Hebrews and tells us that that the blood is the answer of a good conscience. But Peter says the water is. Now, how does all that fit together? You see, when you go down in water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you call that name because the name identifies the blood. See? It was not the Father that shed blood. Why? Because the Father was spirit. And a spirit hath not flesh and bones. So God could not shed blood without coming in bodily form to visit the human race. And he had to come in bodily form, and that bodily form was the Son of God, Jesus Christ, made of a woman made under the law, according to Galatians 4.4. 4. So what really takes place in baptism, and we're going to put this in this message later, what really takes place in baptism is that you go down in water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and His name identifies the blood that takes away sins that are remitted in baptism. Now, <clears throat> when... When your sins are remitted, you are justified. That simply means you are made just as if you had never sinned. Now, isn't that great? You see, <clears throat> Paul tells Timothy, some men's sins are sent before to be judged, and some men's follow some sins follow after men to the judgment. So what happens is that when I was buried in his lovely name, my sins were sent ahead to be judged and then cast into hell. And you see, when they're cast into hell, they will never be brought up nor remembered because hell is a place of confinement. The only thing that God refuses to think about are the things that are cast into hell. It's not that God cannot remember them. He will not remember them. Because hell is so final that he chooses to do nothing about it. Now, if I do not make it to heaven, it certainly will not be because of something that he has previously forgiven me of. So you see, justification, Christ died for me in justification. But sanctification, the parallel in sanctification is this, that there is a death that also occurs. But it occurs not for the sake of your own sins, but in appreciation for forgiveness of sins. You see, in justification, Christ died for you. In sanctification, you die for him. See, and that is a level of spiritual maturity that a lot of people can't reach. And this is the reason why they cannot know the will of God. And so they struggle and struggle and they fret and they do everything that they, they know to do. Even some people go so far as to say, well, I heard this voice, but I don't know if it was God or if I don't know if it's the devil. Now, that seems very strange because Jesus said in John 10, he said, my sheep know my voice and another they will not follow. Then why do people struggle with the voice of God? Because they are not dying for him. See, Jesus died for you. We all appreciate that. But if you want to know the will of God, you're going to have to do some dying for him. See? And so that's what sanctification is all about. And that's what the will of God is all about. Now, <clears throat> I know that I'm speaking to a lot of different people on different spiritual levels. And some of you have not yet committed your heart to God. We want this message to be applicable to every person who is here. Now, I just simply read two passages of Scripture. I'm not for sure what the word Joppa really means. It may not have any bearing upon decision-making at all. But nevertheless, because of the parallel here and the two passages of Scripture that people were forced to make a decision relative to the salvation of the Gentiles, I want to talk to you about your own spiritual Joppa. 
where you are giving consideration to your own particular soul and your own particular needs. And also we want to talk to you who have passed that and you are giving consideration to your ministry. Now I personally believe that all of us need to fear God. I want to start out by saying that I believe a healthy thing is to fear God. You see, I, I believe, and I am yet to be proven scripturally wrong on this, nobody comes to Jesus because they love him. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, Brother Grant, I disagree with that. I think that you need to preach love. You need to preach the man who has not committed his heart to God cannot love God and does not love God. You may say, then how do you get him saved? Well, now Paul put it this way. He said, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men to repent. Now, isn't that something? Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men to repent. <coughs> Please <coughs> excuse my, <coughs> my hacking and coughing here. But I think that most people come to God because they fear Him. They fear Him. Now, I've gone over some of these scriptures repeatedly in some messages. And I keep doing it because I think it's necessary for those who are coming into the Christian faith to establish the correct philosophy or ideas relative to living for God. See, in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, the Bible says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy in time of need. Why does the sinner come to God? Because he loves him. He cannot love God. Because you see, you, can't, you don't, don't fall in love. Love is a growing relationship. If you see a young boy who falls in love with a young girl, it is false love. It's what we call puppy love. You've heard of that, haven't you? And I tell all of our young people, puppy love only leads to a dog's life. <clears throat> you know, you just don't fall in love. How can you love somebody that you don't even know? You may say, on the other hand, then how can God love me if he doesn't know me? He knows you, friend, because he made you. You see, that's the difference. You don't have one nerve in your body that Jesus doesn't know exactly where it runs. See? You don't have one muscle that Jesus doesn't know exactly what causes it to operate. See, the, the Bible says the word of the Lord is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing of sunder of soul and spirit to the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Isn't it something that Jesus Christ can read your thoughts? But the Bible goes on further than that, the thoughts and the intents. Now, what the Scripture is making reference to here is that, that God knows exactly what you're thinking, but He also knows what makes you think the way you think. Now, if you don't think He knows you, you're mistaken. Because that's how well he knows you. So, <clears throat> when we come to God, we come to God because we fear him. Now, I just got to tell you this. See, <clears throat> there are a lot of people that believe in annihilation. That when you die, you just burn up. Jehovah's Witness teach that. Now, I understand that even some apostolics believe that. Now, I personally don't believe that. I believe... In everlasting punishment in a lake of fire. I believe that because I think the scripture teaches that. And i got to tell you this. I don't know if I'd be living for God today. If I believe that all you did is just burn up. Well some people believe that. Don't they? they do I know what brimstone is? I know this. That every man don't live, don't live for God will find out in a hurry when he dies. I would assume, yes. I, I would assume, okay. You let me do the talking now. 
I'll let you do the talking later, okay? All right. So here's what here's what happens, you see. If you have a Christian, if there's no more to, if there's no more to punishment than just burning up. If you have a Christian who dies in a fire, and some Christians their homes burn up and they die because all of us are taken out of this life one way or the other. If hell is no more than just burning up, then the Christian experiences just as much punishment as the man who is then cast into hell. See? Because one burns up, the other one burns up. Now, I don't believe that. And I believe that I'm serving God today because I feared Him. Now, if today, all of a sudden, you took this aspect of hell away, and you said, Brother Grant, would you serve God if all of a sudden we remove this aspect of hell? I will say, I would continue to serve God. Why? Because, you see, I have developed a relationship with Him now. I love Him. But John put it like this. We love Him because He first loved us. See? He called us when we didn't love Him. Now, if He called you when you didn't love Him, why are you serving Him? You see, the publican stood in the temple and smote himself upon the breast, and he said, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Now, if you notice in, 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 in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, when we come boldly before the throne of grace, we come before the throne of grace originally, not for grace, but for mercy. The Bible says that we might find mercy. Now, mercy is withholding of judgment. And if a man makes a bold approach before the throne of grace to find mercy. That's a withholding of judgment. Listen, friend, that's dealing with repentance. And, and I just want to put this in because I think it's so very healthy for you to understand. You know, occasionally you have a person who says, I have genuinely repented, but they don't want anybody to find out about it. Now, I really doubt the validity of their experience. Or I want to be baptized, but I want to be baptized in a private service where nobody can see me. Why? Well, I don't want anybody to think badly of me. You see, when we make our approach to the throne of grace, it is a bold approach. Like the publican who stood and smote himself upon the breast. He said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He realized that the judgments of God was going to rest upon him. And he made his decision openly and publicly. Listen, he didn't care anything. You let a person be moved by fear, friend, and they don't slip around in the blackness of the night. It is a very brazen and bold approach. But the man who came boldly before the throne of grace, he came there to obtain mercy, the withholding of judgment. It was later then that he developed a relationship in which condemnation was taken away. And Paul says in Romans 8, There is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to flesh, but after the Spirit. And so then we are made to sit in heavenly places with the Lord. And isn't that a great experience when you, when you have emptied your soul and you prayed and God has forgiven you and everything is right and, and, and you're sitting there in a heavenly place with the Lord with your hands lifted or, or whatever position you're in and you feel the divine favor of God come down and you begin to, oh, listen, you'll know the will of God then. Why? Because you have already then sacrificed yourself. You've given yourself. You see, your relationship now is you gave your life from me, Lord. Now, you send me forth and you tell me what to do and I'll die trying. Whosoever seeketh to save his life shall lose his life. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall gain everlasting life. Life was meant to be spent. It was meant to be sacrificed upon the altar of human service. And if while you are here, you will determine in your life or in your heart that you will live for a purpose and for a reason that's greater than a selfish one, you're going to find a, a flood of joy that comes and, and, and comes over your soul like never before. Now you see, here is a man who was supposedly a prophet of God. 
He was a he was a, a notable man. God spoke to him. He knew the voice of God. But the problem is, you see, carnality is something that is so very strange indeed. See, the Bible says the carnal mind cannot know the things of the spirit, for they're spiritually discerned. You see, all of us have a natural mind. Paul deals with that. The natural mind is able to deduct situations. The carnal mind and the spiritual mind simply make application relative to the deductions that we have. Now, with my natural mind, I don't have to be spiritual to figure out that, pardon me, that two plus two is four. No, I was taught that. My teachers taught that. She taught it to all the Christians and all the sinners alike. My natural mind says that. See? Now, sometimes in the world, see, things add up so naturally that we can't make spiritual application to things, though. Now, a typical example, see, is in our present world. I don't know why I'm going over some of these things, because you hear me say some of these things a lot, but I feel that I'm ministering to somebody here tonight. You see, the, the, the women's lip movement, and I call it women's lip movement, see? The women's lip movement, you know, they say, well, we want equal rights with the men. So one day I'm going to be boss, and the next day you be boss. Why? Because... One plus one is always two. But the Bible says they two shall be one. See? The Bible says one plus one is one. That is in this case. See? <clears throat> so what happens then, we make carnal application because of physical thinking. Now, it is possible to be extremely spiritual in certain areas and extremely carnal in other areas. Let me give you an example, okay? You see, Peter said uh, that charity covers the multitude of sins. Was that Peter that said that or Paul? My mind's kind of going blank now. But anyway, one of the apostles said that charity covers the multitude of sins. Now, if I understand what the Scripture is logically saying there, is that, you know, <clears throat> if, if, you have a, if you have a bosom buddy, okay, you really like him, and he does something that's wrong, you have a tendency to just kind of overlook it. Why? He's your friend. But if you have an enemy, and he does something that's even the stretch of your imagination that looks wrong, you automatically brand him as being wrong altogether. So what happens is, it all depends on who commits the transgression as to whether it's right or wrong. That is in our own eyes, see. And every now and then, you know, somebody has done something, you hear about it, and first thing you want to do is, who did it? What difference does it matter? Well, it makes a whole lot of difference to a lot of people because it might be right and it might be wrong depending on who does it. You see, if you like somebody, you like them. If you don't like them, you don't like them. See? So a typical example of being both carnal and spiritual is that you overlook the faults of your friends, but you overemphasize the faults of your enemies. So you spiritualize one situation, and the other situation, you carnalize it, if that's a word. I don't know. But it sounds right, doesn't it? So what the deal is then, <clears throat> you're making spiritual application and carnal application. It appears to me that Jonah was probably that type of person. He had the ability to be used of God and to do what God wanted him to do up to a particular point. See, but not past a particular point. You see, sometimes Christians say, I'm led by the Spirit. But their leading of the Spirit is similar to a train that's on a track. As long as they know where the train's going. Because you see, you can't just run the train off the track and run across the prairie someplace. No, it's track bound. And because you know where the track is going, 
It's easy then to say, I'll do the will of God. Why? Because you know very well that train's running to St. Louis. You follow what I'm saying? In other words, it's cut and dried as to what you're going to do. So you say, I'll follow the Lord, and I'll do what the Lord wants me to do. Why? Because you know what God's going to do. But you see, every now and then, God does something that's different. He doesn't follow the track. And when you start following Him, you have no earthly idea where you're going. And as long as Jonah operated within the premises of Israel and rubbed shoulders with his peers and the people who knew him, I'll do the will of God. Why? Because he knew where the track led. But all of a sudden, God puts another challenge to him. He says, now, Jonah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to Nineveh and cry against the people of Nineveh because their wickedness is great. Now, Nineveh was the only Gentile city in the entire Old Testament that had a repenting revival. But before they had it, <clears throat> Jonah was not aware of what might take place. Probably all he could see was his hide stretched out on a tree someplace. They done tacked him up for good. That's all he could see. All he could see was the wickedness of the city and them coming in. Now, the reason why he could probably see this, because, you see, the Jews were very, very bigoted. Now, <clears throat> they didn't like the Gentiles. And they even considered the Gentiles to be dogs. I mean, just dogs. That's why the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus, she said, but Master, it would be okay, wouldn't it, for the dogs to eat the crumbs that fall from the Master's table? In other words, she knew the feeling of the Jews against the Gentiles, and she was a Gentile. And Jesus said, I have not seen in all of Israel faith like your faith, woman. See, and so the, the Lord made her daughter whole as a result of the great faith that she had. But I gave you that story to, to explain to you that, that, that this was a feeling that the Gentiles had toward the Jews and the Jews had toward the Gentiles. Now I'm asked to cross my barriers and go out where I've never been before. And did you know this is the real test of the will of God in a man's life? If you're always doing something you've done before, then it's not too bad. But there's always skepticism involved in the unknown. And there's apprehension about doing something you've never done before. And this was the test of the will of God for Jonah. And I believe that I'm speaking to some Christians tonight that God has spoken to. And you're right down to Joppa. You've got the ticket in your hand to run. And the Holy Ghost is saying, don't you dare run. Because I've got a whale of a problem that will swallow you up if you try to leave here and do what you want to do. The only saint place the only place that will bring joy and peace and happiness to the Christian family is in the will of God but you let me know that I'm doing what God wants me to do and though all hell assail me I can do it and do it with confidence why? because I believe that God is bigger than any force in the world But you see, here's a, here's a prophet, and you've got to put yourself, transpose yourself into his particular position. Oh, he's going to go to a city, and he's going to be preaching to one of the larger metropolises of his day. He doesn't know anybody there, and he knows very well when he leaves, he's going to be laughed to scorn by all the Jews. And when he gets up there, he's going to run into a lot of opposition because they... 
They hate me. They may, they may come down to Israel for, for merchandising purposes, and, and we, may, we may have certain trades with them, but when it comes to religion, it's off limits! And so he decided, I can't go through this. And so he bought his ticket. But you see, the situation that he found himself in when he fled from God's presence was this. Okay? He bought his ticket at Joppa and he went down by the seashore. And when he bought his ticket and went down to the seashore, he then went down to the boat. And then from the boat, he went down into the bottom of the boat, and he went to sleep. The boat then sailed out into the sea, and a great storm came, and they began to seek what the problem was. And they brought up Jonah, and they found out that Jonah was the real problem because he was running from God. And they took him and cast him overboard. He then went down in the whale, and the whale went down into the bottom of the sea. Now the preposition that keeps coming up in all of this is down, 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 down. And you will find that in the Bible, when your spiritual location is mentioned, backsliding is sliding backwards or downwards. That's what backsliding is. Now, if, if at any point in your life you were nearer to God than you are now, you have slid backwards or downward. You will find, however, that the Bible speaks of spiritual locations. Now, those spiritual locations that that exemplify highs in God. It talks about mountaintops. When Jesus ascended into the heavens, where did he ascend? Did he ascend downward? He went upward. When the Bible speaks of people going to hell, cast them into outer darkness, into the pit. Pits are not tunnels that lead upward. They're tunnels that lead downward. And so as a result, see, when Jonah failed God, he made his decision at Joppa, he says, I'm going to go over and have a big, gigantic vacation at Tarshish. I'm just going to lay out and bask in the sun and everybody back home think they're going to think that, 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 that you know, I'm a successful prophet and they, they may even think I'm over at Nineveh preaching. <laughs> but, you know, but you see, the Bible says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro forth in the earth. You know, if God can read your thoughts and if man can take x-rays and x-ray your bones x-ray is a form of light and the Bible speaks of God as being the source of light if you've ever done any any study on the light band it's one of the most fascinating studies in the spectrum we have various colors but all of the spectrum that you cannot see with your eyes on one side there's the ultraviolet light on the other side is the infrared light See, laser is a form of light. Radio, AM, amplified modulation. FM. What does FM stand for? Frequency modulation. Television. All of these are forms of light. Now, it may surprise you, but they're devices in which you can look right through this wall and see what's on the other side. Now, if man has the ability to take and make machines that, that, that can look right inside of your bones, and God being the source of light that He is, why can't we comprehend that we cannot escape the all-seeing eye of God? When David says, I cannot escape from God, though I flee, to the mountains or to the depths of the sea. He is always there. Why do we think that we can hide things from God? When God is omnipresent, 
In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him and without Him was not made anything that was made. In Him was light and the light was the, or in Him was life brother and the life was the light of men. The light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. God was a major source of light. Look back in Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God divided the light from the darkness. God, be, God was a major source of light. And you see, light has the ability to see where you cannot see. We may have some nurses here or some technicians that take, take x-rays on a regular basis. They don't like to take too many x-rays. On a human body. Why? Because the light rays are trapped right inside. And they begin. They continue to activate. And work right inside of you. Even after the x-ray has been taken. Microwave that you put your food in. and It's a fast uh, way to cook it. If you're cooking a a bulk of, let's say, a, a potato. You set it on 10 minutes and put it in there. But they tell you, you've got to take it out before it gets done. You know the reason why? Because those light rays are trapped inside and they begin. To, they continue to work even after you cut it off. And so the food continues to cook inwardly. Why? Because light has shined in there. You may look in and say, I don't see any light. Friend, it's in there. And you see the all-seeing eye of God is searching to and fro in the earth. There is not one thing that God does not see. And Jonah thought, I'll hide from my peers, and I won't go to Nineveh, and everything's going to be all right, friend. And it wasn't all right. He was headed for the, the whale of his life, as far as problems were concerned. You know, when Moses rose up to slay the Egyptian, the Bible says that he slew him. And then the first thing he did, he looked to the right and he looked to the left and he saw nobody. So he dug a hole and buried the man. And isn't that typical of a man who wants to cover up his sin? First thing he does, he kind of looks around to see who's looking. If nobody's looking, then uh, we'll kind of whitewash all this over and we'll forget it. But God sees. He knows how many of you went to the prayer room tonight and how many of you didn't. And He knows why you didn't. And He's able to analyze whether your reason is just an excuse or a valid one. He knows if you're lazy and you don't want to do it or if you have a real reason and you got tied up and couldn't. You see, He knows all of those things. But in our own minds, see, we conjure up all of these things as to why we can do what we want to do and have our own way. And at the same time, then we sit back and wonder, why isn't God blessing me? Why isn't He talking to me the way He ought to? Why isn't He blessing my life? You're fooling yourself and you're not fooling God, though. See, he knows all of these things. So out in the ship he went and down in the bottom and he was, he was sawing logs or counting sheep or whatever you want to say. And a storm came and they, they brought him up and he admitted, yes, the problem is mine. And so they took him and they cast him into the sea. He was swallowed by a whale. Now the Bible tells us <coughs> Jonah began to repent. In, in chapter 2, notice what the scripture said. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. Now, <clears throat> this fish, this whale, is a type of hell. It's a type of the second death. And we want to show you that in the scripture. <clears throat> okay, so Jonah cried and he said... I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hadst came, hadst cast me into the deep, into the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. 
Now I want to stop here just for a moment. And I want to go back to Matthew. Matthew the 12th chapter. Matthew the 12th chapter. Verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answering saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Verse 39, But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. But there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Talking about Jonah. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, we want to just stop there, and we want to talk about what, what really did take place. You see, here he is down in the belly of the whale. He was down there three days and three nights. And, of course, <clears throat> we know that Jesus compared his death and his burial and his resurrection with Jonah. Now, when Jesus died, Peter says he ascended into the lower parts of the earth and ministered to the spirits that were in prison. Now, that's what happened to him. He ministered to the spirits who were in prison. When Jesus came forth out of that grave, he came forth with the keys of death, hell, and the grave in his hand. You see, all of us were born sinners. We were born sinners and we were shaped in iniquity. But Jesus Christ was born outside of that bondage, outside of that prison. He was made like unto Adam. The book of Romans says he's a second man, Adam. Was Adam created by God a sinner? Absolutely not. He transgressed. But the second man, Adam, did not transgress. Though he was made subject to sin, he was not born a sinner. He was made like Adam. Now the reason why that Jesus Christ had to be born of God outside of the prison cell of sin because, you see, prisons are opened by people from the exterior, not by the inmates inside. And there had to be one who was victorious, that had the key in his hand, that walked up and opened the jail cell and let us all free. Now when Jesus Christ died, when he was buried, and when he arose, he had the keys to death, hell, and the grave in his hand. Now Jesus said to a wicked and adulterous generation, you seek for a sign. But he said, I give you no sign except the sign of Jonas. Now the death, the burial, and the resurrection is not just a story that's supposed to be told at Easter time. As the religious denominations would tell you. It's something that you start celebrating on Palm Sunday and you go through Easter and you talk about the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Up from the grave he arose. Listen, that's something that we need to see every day. Why? Because the death, the burial, and the resurrection, friend, is not just a bedtime story. It's not just a Sunday pulpit story. It's not just a classroom scene. But, friend, it's an experience that you can have in Jesus Christ. Jesus died so that you can die. Jesus was buried so that you can be buried. Jesus arose so that you can rise to newness of life. He said, thy billows have flooded my soul. If you turn with me to the book of Psalms, the 42nd chapter, you will find a very similar language used by the psalmist. I just want to read this to you. Psalm 42, verse 7. Did I say Psalm 47? Psalm 42, verse 7. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. 
All of thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Now you see what happens when you are buried in the tank in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ or in water. The old man is planted in hell. He's cast aside. He has died. And when people die, what do you do? You bury them. It's appointed unto men once to die and after death the judgment. And if your death occurs while you are still alive, physically alive, then the old man is then taken, the man of sin is then taken and cast into hell. You see, that's a beautiful, beautiful part. It's a grave. It's a literal grave. You may say, well, but Brother Grant, if that's true, then I must be able to live without temptation and such. Well, just as Adam was made, as he was made, without sin, he was still subject to sin. And just as Jesus Christ was made free of sin, he was still made under the law subject to sin. Now, the reason why I'm explaining this is because a lot of people think if you're baptized, then that's it. That's all I have to do to be saved. Listen, you need to every day approach the throne of grace and ask that God's blood just bathe you and bathe you and bathe you. See, the Old Testament talks about atonement. The New Testament, the word atonement is used only one time in the New Testament in Romans, the fifth chapter, and in As it's used here, it's not used like the Old Testament. Seventy-two times in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word kephar is used, which means to cover. In the New Testament, it's not used at all. The word atonement in the New Testament means reconciliation. Then why doesn't the New Testament teach atonement? Because the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats and so forth could take away the sin of man. You see, in the Old Testament, the animals were substitutes that covered a man's sin. But in the New Testament, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He's not going to cave for you. He will not cover you. He will take him away. And when he takes them away, you come up out of hell, a new creature in Christ Jesus. And you see, that's exactly what happened to Jonah, friend, when he was vomited up after three days in the belly of the whale, and he cleaned himself up. Friend, he was ready then to go to Nineveh and do anything that God wanted him to do. And the reason why that some people struggle so much with the will of God is because a true conversion has never really taken place in their life. I really believe that what Jesus was saying, nobody needs a sign greater than the sign of conversion. When you see an alcoholic that turns away from his alcohol, that's all you need to see. When you see a man that's delivered from the iniquity of bondage, that's all you need to see. When you see a man that's transformed by the miraculous power of Jesus Christ, that's all the sign that you need that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And friend, when he was truly converted, he cared less about what the bigoted Jews thought. He cared less about the peers that he had. All he had was a red-hot burning zeal in his heart to do what God wanted him to do. And he went to Nineveh. And there he began to cry in the streets of Nineveh. Repent or perish. And he cried it so loud, friend, that everybody in the city of Nineveh, including the king, heard it. And the king declared a fast, and with sackcloth and ashes they repented. 
Oh, let me tell you something. The latter part of Jonah's life there, excluding a few situations, is such a beautiful, 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 beautiful story. Why? Because he was a converted man. He was a changed man. Now that's where some of you are tonight. You're a Joppa. What am I going to do, Brother Grant? Well, you can do what God wants you to do. You can run from God. But you see, you, you really cannot escape God. And I know that there's some that are sitting here that have never been baptized in Jesus' name. And some have never been filled with the Holy Ghost. And you're equating all of this in the light of your religious backgrounds. Am I going to do what God wants me to do or, or what? I talked to the mayor of a city that I pastored one time. He looked at me after I'd witnessed to him for some time. He says, oh, John. He said, you know, <laughs> you see that red church building up on the hill? And there it stood so beautifully. He said, my grandfather and my father and myself were charter members of this church. We poured the cement and did all the flat work. He said, now, I was born, and he called the denomination, and I'm going to die that same denomination. He said, whether you prove me right or wrong, I'm what I want to be, period. You see, Napoleon Bonaparte put it like this. He said, the greatest derangement of a mind is for a man to believe something simply because he wants to believe it. And you see, that's the way Jonah was. He was a jumper. He believed what he wanted to believe. And some of you are at your jumper tonight. You're doing exactly what you want to do when you know that inside the voice of God is telling you otherwise. But can you really receive justification outside the will of God? I don't think so. I know according to Scripture you can't. Can you continue to run from God's will and be saved? I think God has a whale of a problem waiting for you. Listen to me. I know that I'm speaking to somebody tonight who needs to hear what I'm saying. You can't go on and on and on walking down the paths of selfishness. God has put you in Joppa to make up your mind. It'll be so much easier if you will go the route of the second man who was at Joppa. There was a sheet knit at four corners that came down. And the Lord told him, said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now Peter, because of the Old Testament law, he was a very honest man. He said, Now wait a minute. See, he believed that out of the two or three mouths of witnesses that words were to be established, a doctrinal change was taking place. And so the sheet came down. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. He said, not so, Lord, for my mouth has not touched anything that's common or unclean. The voice of the Lord came again and said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He said, not so. But the Lord did it three times. Now, you may condemn Peter, but I think Peter had a valid reason to question what he saw. Too many people just, you know, they have a little dream or something. They think, well, this has got to be right, you know. Oh, if it's dealing with a doctrine, friend, it's got to be in the Bible. Right. See? And that's what he was dealing with. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. He said, not so, Lord, for my mouth has never touched anything common and clean. <clears throat> the doctrine of sanctification now is coming into effect. You see, what God has touched with His hands and what God has cleansed and what God has separated. Friend, we not dare call common or unclean. Now, he was dealing with the animals, 
And I think that had its, it had its purpose. But the, the, the primary purpose in all of this was God wanting to leave Joppa and go to a Gentile city to preach to a man who was in deep, dire need of the Holy Ghost. And so he was at Joppa on the housetop in a trance. And that's what you need to do tonight. It's your Joppa. You need to feel for God like Peter felt for God. You see, you can be like Jonah. You can get your ticket and put it in your hands. I'm going to run. This is too heavy for me. Or you can be like Peter and say, Lord, I'm going to pray and seek your face. And I want to do what you want me to do. Don't you know that Peter had some feelings? If you don't believe Peter had feelings about the Gentiles, he was a man who unlocked the door of salvation to the Gentiles. But you read Acts 15 and then read the words of the Apostle Paul. And it certainly leads us to believe that even after that, he really wasn't for sure that he did the right thing. Let me just go through a few things that happened. First thing he did when he got to Cornelius' household after the men came for him, he stood up there. <laughs> well, he's, <laughs> I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. <clears throat> what he was saying is, I guess it's all right for me to be here because it appears to me that God really doesn't care. He wants everybody to be saved. Now, how would you feel if I approached you like that and said, well, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm a little prejudiced here. Uh, I want to preach to some of you because God wants me to, but uh, the truth of the matter is I, I'm not too happy about it. How would you feel? Now, you don't think he did that? Read Acts 11. The first thing he did, he ran back and he told the, the church of Jerusalem, he said, oh, let me tell you what, the Gentiles will receive the Holy Ghost. They said, they have? Well, now how do you validate that? He said, well, you know, uh, who was I to withstand God? <laughs> you know, uh, you can see him vindicating himself. But because that he followed the voice of God, the key to the Gentile people The key to their salvation rested in his message that day. And the church, by and large, is a Gentile church. Obedience at Joppa. Some of you parents will make decisions tonight that will weigh heavily upon the salvation of your children. Some of your children may die lost if the wrong decision is made. You see, no man is an island. Every man is connected like continents. Jesus said, no man liveth unto himself and no man dies unto himself. All of us have influence over others. Some of you have been fighting the battle for years. If the right decision is not made tonight, perhaps your relatives will not be saved. You have fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles and cousins and grandmas and grandpas and children that need to know God. Did Peter understand the value of what he was doing that day? I don't really know, but he knew the value of obedience at Joppa. You see, if your life was just your life, even though it wouldn't be right, it would be a different story altogether. But it's not just your life. Every decision you make spiritually has a deep, bearing upon others I have known a parents that take their children out of church be a little bit unhappy about something see those children grow up see they're so tiny when they leave and so innocent later on they become hardened and then mom and dad make their way back to church and cry and pray 
But what am I going to do, Pastor? My children won't listen now. Wrong decision in Joppa. I have known of young people to come into the church with a blaze of fire, only to settle in into mediocrity and live their life in mediocrity and later on drag their family down and they never accomplished anything. There is latent in every person here the ability to become successful in God. Let's let the Holy Spirit breathe over us. Hallelujah. Oh, God. On both sides of the pulpit, there is a place to kneel and pray. And as we seek God tonight... I feel that somebody would like to get up and make their way down here and surrender their heart to God. coming from all over the building. Do we have somebody that's never surrendered their heart to God? Why don't you come on right now? Oh, praise God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Somebody else want to come? There is conviction that's heavy in this place. The Lord's talking to hearts. Would you come on right now and give yourself to the Lord? Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. If you don't come down front, why don't you yield yourself right there to God, right where you are? Purpose in your heart right now. I'll be a better person for God. If you've never surrendered your heart to the Lord, then please come down to the front. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Some of you brethren come and move this screen, this projector rather. Oh, hallelujah.